Join me, fellow travelers, on a journey to the spring of 1997. Deep Blue has done honor to computers across the globe by defeating Garry Kasparov in a rematch of their epic chess battle. The English Payson has been named Best Picture by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, undoubtedly the worst film ever to be so honored. J.K. Rowling is preparing to release Harry Potter on an unsuspecting world. Meanwhile, in Detroit, the Stanley Cup drought is going strong. Championship free for going on four decades, Hockey Town had come agonizingly close the previous two seasons, losing the Cup Final in 95, then setting the single-season wins record in 1996, but falling in the Conference Finals. Detroit boasted two future Hall of Famers on defense in Paul Coffey and Nicholas Lindstrom. Yet the pair of left-handers had floundered in the game's biggest moments, Lindstrom especially. The not-yet-Mr. Perfect was a minus six in both the 95 and 96 series losses, meaning the Red Wings allowed six more goals than they scored while Lidstrom was on the ice. The two lefties just couldn't bring home the hardware, and by early in the 1996-97 campaign, Coffee was a Red Wing no more. Enter Larry Murphy. Murphy was a 35-year-old right-hander nearing the twilight of his career. But after moving to Detroit at the trade deadline in 97, he would become an indispensable member of the Red Wings championship run. Paired with the lefty Lidstrom almost immediately, Murphy complemented the young Swede to a T. Murphy was an NHL best plus 16 in the 97 playoffs, with Lidstrom close behind at plus 12. The result? A 42-year cup drought ended, followed by another title the following season. The two men continued to play almost exclusively together, with Lidstrom blossoming into a superstar. As for Murphy, the back-to-back cups must have felt something like deja vu. As a member of the Pittsburgh Penguins earlier that decade, he was the right-handed man to a different Hall of Fame lefty by the name of Paul Coffey. I'm Ben Shields. I'm Paul Michaelman, and this is CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. In this episode, is the secret to a successful defense matching righties with lefties, or were the Red Wings simply the beneficiaries of Larry Murphy's law? CounterPoints is brought to you by Ticketmaster, the world's leading ticketing software and services company. Ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists, teams, and venues across 29 countries, connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year. That's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe. So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. In CounterPoints, we look beyond the data in search of what the data reveals, or supposedly reveals, about what's actually happening, both on the field and off. In each episode, we put one analytics-based hypothesis to the test and see how well it stands up. Today's hypothesis? NHL teams have gone overboard matching right- and left-handed defensemen. In pairing right-handers and left-handers, many NHL teams believe they are following a proven and seemingly obvious formula. If defensemen play on their strong side, they will be more effective at their jobs. Conventional wisdom on what works can codify with surprising speed in sports, and in most other domains for that matter. 
But when something becomes an accepted best practice, we tend to stop asking how it became so. And more dangerously, we often become blind to the evidence that the practice may not be best at all. And at least one expert observer believes this is precisely the case with defenseman pairings in the NHL. Which brings us to Tyler Dello. An NHL columnist at The Athletic, he has been participating in the development of hockey analytics and writing about these ideas at various sites, including his own, mc79hockey.com, for more than a decade. He also worked in an analytics role with the Edmonton Oilers. You can put Dello squarely in the camp of those that believe the NHL has gone overboard in their devotion to right and left-handed pairings. I spoke with Tyler about how left-right pairings became conventional wisdom and what those who follow the strategy are missing. Well, it's not every day that we get to nerd out on hockey analytics. And Paul and I were just talking about this thesis of handedness in defenseman pairings is overvalued. I wanted to start with a little bit of context here. I know that we have some hockey analytics fans as our audience members, but some may not be as familiar with this topic. So could you kind of give us a sense of the difference between right and left-hand shots in hockey? Sure. So it's, it's very simple. Basically, players shoot uh, are said to shoot uh, either left or right. Basically, if, you're, if your right hand is lower on your stick, you're a right shot. And if your left hand is lower on your stick, you're a left shot. And it seems like it wouldn't make a big difference, but it actually does impact how you handle the puck and, and, and how you see the ice. So if you're a right shot on the right side of the ice, there's a lot of things that are easier than if you're a left shot on the right side of the ice. And so that's, that's kind of the first, the first issue. Now, the second issue is there are more left shots than right shots. And so one of the challenges teams run into is finding right shots, both at forward and at defense. And over the past few years, there's been a trend towards using more right shots uh, on the defense courts. Why does this matter from a hockey strategy standpoint? Well, it's easier to make plays on what they call your strong side. So for me, I'm a right shot. My strong side is the right side of the ice. You know, if you imagine if the boards are to your right, and your stick is to your right, it's easier to reach out with your stick and say, get a puck off the boards than if you're on the other side of the ice. It's a much more awkward maneuver. So one of the issues is that it's, it's easier to win pucks in, in a puck battle on, on your strong side. Another issue is it's easier to make passes on your forehand if you're on your strong side. So if you're a left shot and I'm a right shot and we're moving up the ice together, if I'm on the right side, the way that my body kind of naturally positions itself, I'm looking out and I see the whole ice. If I'm on the left side, I've kind of turned a little awkwardly in order to see the whole ice. And, and this is an area that's it, it's not entirely nailed down yet, you know, precisely where all the differences come from. But it's, you know, it's, it's been pretty clearly established that players who shoot right, are, or if you have a defense pair and you have a right shot player on it, it will do better, all other things being equal, than a defense pairing with two left shots on it. And it seems like you believe that teams have gone a little bit too far in pairing right and left-handed defensemen. Why do you believe that? What's, what's your core evidence as to why teams have gone too far in these areas? 
Well, so just to step back for a second, um, the research that's been done, there, the, the first public article on this, of, of which I'm aware, is an article by a guy named Dom Gallimini, and he is with, and I hope I've said his name correctly, he's with a site called Hockey Graphs, and he wrote an article kind of setting out uh, proof that when you've got a right and a left shot defenseman on the ice, uh, you'll do better both in terms of Corsi, which is shot attempts for versus shot attempts against. Uh, and you'll do better in terms of expected goals. And expected goals is a relatively new metric in hockey, but the idea is that it sort of looks at uh, the probability that a shot on net will produce a goal. And basically he looked at, well, what happens when there's a right-left pair on the ice versus a right-right pair or a left-left pair? And he found that the results were better when you had a right-left pair than when you had a right-right pair or a left-left pair. So what that, you know, what he inferred, and I think he's right, is that the differences that I talked about in terms of it's easier to make a pass or it's easier to dig a puck off the, off the boards, those differences actually show up in the results. And, and so that's kind of, you know, the starting point, the evidence that you're better with both a right and a left on the ice. Now, there's a disproportionate supply of lefties um, because in Canada, uh, people disproportionately shoot left. So historically, what you've seen in hockey is that um, left-shot defensemen make up a, a disproportionate share of the, the minutes for defense. And, you know, what Dom showed in his uh, article was that um, in 2007-08, about 50% of five-on-five -five ice time was played with a left-left pair. By 2015-16, that was down below 30%. I did a check this morning, and this year it's down below 25%. So the question that raises is, where are all of these uh, right-shot defensemen coming from? And my theory is that what's happened is that coaches and general managers have started to weight a player's handedness more heavily. And they've brought in players who otherwise might not be as strong as the left-shot players they're displacing. And as a result, um, they've probably gone past the point of equilibrium. And, you know, the league should maybe pull back a bit on the obsessive need to have a left and a right on, on each pairing. So basically what we're hearing from you is that this notion of handedness may be a little bit more overvalued as a driver for performance of a defenseman pair. Right. What are some of the other performance factors that you think an NHL team should be prioritizing maybe over handedness? So when you're when you're the coach or you're the general manager and you're making these decisions, like you're trying to balance, um, you know, how well does a guy make a play? How well does he defend? How well does he, you know, win puck battles? How well does he do sort of all the skills of a defenseman? And then you're trying to balance that against, you know, I guess one of the things you have to consider is, you know, what hand is he? And, you know, I think there's an argument that they're putting too much weight at this point on the player's handedness. And not enough on, you know, the other, um, you know, skills that kind of make up a defenseman's uh, value. And, and it's, it's really, it's about striking a balance. It's about finding that balance between, between what the defenseman does and his hand, which will impact on the results. One of the things that's really interesting about this topic is that it's a topic that kind of flows from coaches. And Mike Babcock, who's the head coach of the Canadian men's national team and, and the Toronto Maple Leafs, He's talked a lot about this publicly, how he likes a left defenseman and a right defenseman. And that's kind of, you know, his discussion of it has kind of gone hand in hand with how the league has changed towards wanting these right shot defensemen. 
And I, I think it's it's really it's a challenge for for managers and coaches to strike a balance um, with limited information. Well, let's pick up on that point about limited information, because, look, you've been in hockey analytics now for more than a decade. You are a pioneer here. Do we have the right data in hockey right now to get at the most important skills for defensemen? And if not, what what needs to change in order to equip coaches and general managers with better information in order to make better decisions? The first thing that you would want to do to really accurately answer this question is to understand just how big the difference, um, the handedness impact is when it comes to picking a puck off the board or making a play or, or making a pass on your strong side. And if the handedness impact shows up in other parts of the game and, and it may well like, um, you know, one example is taking a one timer is much easier if you're on your what they call weak side. So there actually might be some areas where a left shot defenseman on his right side has an advantage. Um, and so if you had, for example, some tracking data and you could start to get into more detailed analyses of puck battles one and, you know, is the player, you know, taking more high value shots and is he able to make better passes on his strong side? You could start to kind of quantify the size of the effect uh, of handedness on the um, performance uh, of, of left and right shot defensemen. Once you were doing that, then you could start to push into well, are we better off with a right shot defenseman who's objectively not as good or are we better off with a, le- a left shot defenseman who's better? And, you know, like different sports have had to deal with this challenge, right? Like this is no different than what baseball was dealing with 30 years ago when Bill James was writing about platoon effects and whether or not you should uh, prefer to have a, a stronger right-handed pitcher on the mound at a given time or, or a weaker left-handed pitcher. And just the challenge that hockey presents as compared to baseball is that baseball has a much cleaner record of what's happened than, than what hockey's historically had, where we're having to kind of infer the impact of handedness from uh, you know, shot data or, or from expected goals models, uh, as opposed to being able to kind of directly measure the skills that are impacted by it. So is player tracking data the missing link here? I think it's going to be a huge step forward. You know, there's people who think that it will be a magic bullet, and it won't be that. Um, and you're going to have to do a lot of work to, I think, really suck good insights out of it. But I think for those, for those teams or those people who ask good questions and are able to structure their studies correctly, I think they'll be able to, to pull an immense amount out of it. And I think like if you look at other leagues and basketball is one that really sticks out to me, like they've done a lot with the player tracking data and they're you know, able to measure sort of individual confrontations uh, between players in a way that hockey hasn't been able to to do yet. And so, you know, I think it'll be tremendously useful for assessing some of these questions. And, 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 and what's you know, again, what's interesting about this is that this was a, you know, a point that coaches were making, like one of the best coaches was saying this. And then it was able, you know, you know, Dom was able to show that the data backed it up. And once we get this next generation data, you'll be able to dig deeper into it and to start to put a price on it. And once you can do that, then you can accurately, you know, really accurately answer, you know, whether or not coaches have gone too far in preferring to have right handed defensemen. All right. So definitely the jury sounds like it's still out on this player tracking data is going to help when it does come to the NHL. And by the way, do you know when that's happening? 
it increasingly sounds like uh, 2019-20 will be the uh, will be the season. So you know we've heard that a lot, but uh, it seems to me like there's some real momentum this time. And, you know, hopefully they get that there and they they make a lot of it available because I think, you know, what you've seen in other sports and I guess particularly baseball here is that when you make the data available, you sort of get the benefit of the amateur analyst community. And a lot of good stuff came out of that in baseball. And I have no doubt that a lot of great stuff would come out in hockey if they did it. So when we look at the season this year, can you give us and our listeners a defenseman pairing or two that we should pay attention to? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I think um, San Jose is probably the best team because it's got a bunch of really interesting pairings. You know, like they've got Brent Burns and Mark Edward Vlasic and Eric Carlson, and those so those three players you've got two guys who've won Norris trophies, and Vlasic might be the best defenseman of the three, and he's never won it. So it, it's a very interesting mix of defensemen, and they're trying to find a way right now to sort of maximize the value they get from all three of them. And so for me, if you're interested in, in a group of defensemen to study, those are the ones, uh, you know, you want to pay attention to, to see how the coach tries to maximize value from them. It's, it's interesting. Like Pete DeBoer is a fascinating guy. He's the head coach there. And I, I actually wrote about this last year, but he is so aggressive in, you know, trying to get his matchups with Vlasic against the other team's best forwards that he'll just have Vlasic, you know, he'll put him out for a faceoff. And if the best players don't don't come on, Vlasic just leaves the ice as soon as it's over. So it's, um, you know, I think if you're looking for what might be the next step in defenseman usage, uh, San Jose is a good team to keep an eye on. Anything else beyond defenseman pairings that teams should be paying attention to with regard to adopting innovative strategies based on analytics, especially with the rollout of player tracking data, hopefully, in the future. Anything else regarding hockey analytics that teams should really be paying attention to from your standpoint? Yeah, I think what we're going to see is teams are going to be able to much more effectively evaluate what works and what doesn't. You know, what, what I think is hard to kind of wrap your head around is it's hard to really know what's going on around the league. And, you know, I've talked to friends in TV who will have, say, a coach in for uh, the playoffs or something. His team didn't make the playoffs. And, you know, they say that like, the coaches are pretty open. They have no idea what's going on in the other conference. And it's because you're, you're really focused on your team and you only see the other team once or twice a year. So you have no idea what's going on there. So what I think that the data will enable the teams that are aggressive and smart about it to do is, is sort of get out in front of, you know, yes, we can use this data to sort of create descriptions of all 31 teams in a league. And we can understand, you know, what everybody's doing. And we can start to look for best practices that we can steal. And, and that, to me, is going to be a really, you know, fascinating thing is which teams are able to, you know, quickly identify what they should take from other teams and what works and what doesn't. Because I, I think that's hard to do right now, just working with video and the limited data the NHL provides. And with the tracking data, I think you'll be able to take an enormous step ahead in terms of doing that. I agree, and that tracking data can't here can't come here soon enough. Yes. And do you think that the advent of more advanced hockey analytics will make the game more fun for fans to watch? You know what? This is a great question. So I have a friend who's in media, and he always moans about how baseball has been adversely impacted by uh, data, right? Because players or teams are shifting, and batting averages are down, and it's just become strikeouts, home runs, and walks. And now, you know, the counter argument I give is that basketball is wild now. It's all just three-point shots and, you know, it's high scoring and it's super fun. 
And it's interesting. Like one of the things you'll see in hockey, and actually I wrote about this at theathletic.com, is talking about how power plays are better than ever. And what you've seen is that teams have shifted from using three forwards and a defenseman to using four forwards and a defenseman. And I really think that that's been, you know, to some degree driven by data. Analytics people have been pushing for this for 15 years. And, you know, that to me is an example. And goals are fun. I'm a huge believer in that. Like, you know, there's a lot of old-timey purists who like to say, oh, you know, a 2-1 game, that's, that's what you want. I don't buy that. You know, I think hockey's best when it's a 6-5 game. And so that to me is an example of the data made the case. And, you know, between the data and coaches, you know, seeing other teams doing it, um, we suddenly got more goals and more excitement. So I absolutely think that, you know, data can make the game better. And I hope that coaches, uh, when, when it comes on board, I hope that coaches and analytics departments try to use it to create uh, just as much as they do try to use it to destroy what the other team is doing. All right, coming back from that discussion with Tyler, Paul, Mary, what'd you think? Um, I think Tyler mounts a really interesting argument um, that ties into, I think, a, a really interesting larger issue, right? What Tyler is demonstrating is how important it is for organizations in sports and otherwise to pause every once in a while and question why they do things the way they do. Organizations only tend to do this when things are going wrong, right? We've got a problem. What led to this problem? How can we do things better? But when they wait until things are going poorly, teams miss the opportunity to improve and to get ahead of the competition. And I think righty-lefty pairings is one of these cases, at least based on what Tyler has said. NHL teams have this slavish devotion to a practice. This practice has gone on for a long time. So they believe it works. So I'm not in a position to say it doesn't work. I think teams have evidence that it is a pretty good practice. But is it always the best practice? We don't know until we really look at a more detailed level as to what is driving successful defenseman pairings performance. So your pairing is plus 20 so far this season. That's great. Maybe it could be plus 30. It's incredibly valuable for a team to step back, any organization, to step back every once in a while and question their own success. If they do the investigation and they affirm there's very good reason to do a practice a certain way, keep doing it and go all in. But you'd be surprised what you discover. And I think Tyler's argument is a great call to organizations to take a breath and question their own success. Paul, the problem is, you have to have data to do a rigorous investigation on why you are having the success that you're having. And I know a lot of NHL teams would like to take that step back and do a sophisticated analysis. But as we discovered in the interview with Tyler, we are still a ways away until player tracking data makes it to the NHL. Now, hopefully that will be coming soon. And when it does, mark my words, we will be seeing an analytics revolution in hockey where the teams that invest in analytics will be able to find creative competitive edges 
like they've never found before. And so for all the hockey fans out there, analytics experts out there, we are on the cusp of creative and innovative analytics work in hockey just as soon as that player tracking data arrives. Mary, your thoughts? Well, I'm not so sure about the thesis or the argument, but I would say that at the very least, the three of you have convinced me that hockey is about a lot more than guys fighting on ice, uh, and I might just catch a couple games this year. And I like the English patient. This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. And please take a moment to post a review. We really want to hear your feedback. CounterPoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Our crack researcher is Jake Menashe.